Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. President Trump's nominee for this vacancy will receive a vote on the floor of the Senate. People ask me, when would you be satisfied with the number of women on the court when there are nine? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. Jamie, the world, at least for liberals, feels to be under yet another pall of sadness with the passing of RBG. But how are things for you on this day? Well, indeed, it has been a, a, a sad time around my residence uh, for obvious reasons. But, the, you know, we had a nice crisp fall day today. And uh, so that, that was nice to sit on the back porch and enjoy that for a little while. So I'm doing fairly well, all things considered. Excellent. Excellent. It is a if you're listening to this and you haven't spent extensive time in the South, if you actually get a real fall day in the fall in the South, that's a very nice thing. <laughs> They usually don't, they usually either don't exist or they hit like in late November or something like that. But that aside, uh, today, dear listeners, we will indeed discuss the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And just as importantly, we will celebrate her life's work and legacy as an attorney, scholar, and a judicial rock star. In our second segment, we'll gather up our robes, turn our face toward the sun, and muster up the courage to talk about the political reckoning that will unfold in the coming days and weeks in light of Ginsburg's death and her now vacant Supreme Court seat. As always, we'll bless someone's heart between our first and second segments, and we'll close out our show with our regular front porch musings. But before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, to please rank and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. Doing so will help others to find our work, and we certainly appreciate that. And if you want to read more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all, everyone, for being with us this week. Jamie, in our first segment, we want to turn our attention toward the life and the legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, otherwise known as the notorious RBG. Jamie, though we be not women, we realize that our appreciation of RBG and her decisions will be impacted by that experiential difference, of course. And at the same time, we be liberals, and thus we do have a strong appreciation for the work that RBG has accomplished over a long and impressive career. Can you talk us through some of the aspects of her legacy and how you interpret her career? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Uh, I have to say that when we uh, when we heard the news on on Friday night of her passing, it really was as if a, a, a pall had been dropped over uh, the entirety of the house. And so, we have spent much of the weekend sort of talking through what that might look like and and talking through her life as well. So, let me just give you a, a few of the highlights, and, and we'll sort of go from there. She was, of course, born in Brooklyn and raised there as well. She went to Columbia Law School after a brief stint at Harvard Law School. After graduation, she was denied a clerkship with Justice Frankfurter because of her gender. In 1972, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. She, of course, argued and or wrote briefs that expanded the equal protection and rights of women. 
she was nominated to the federal bench by President Jimmy Carter in 1980, where she stayed until 1993, when President Clinton nominated her to replace the retiring Justice Byron White. She was the second female to serve on the Supreme Court and the first Jewish female. She spent much of uh, the 1990s and early 2000s moving to the left because the court shifted to the right. In the middle of the first decade of the 2000s, she became both the symbolic and practical torchbearer for progressive jurisprudence. And of course, the last few years of her life, she enjoyed near rock star status because of the force of her dissents during the Roberts Court. She was uh, played brilliantly by the wonderful Kate McKinnon on SNL and given the moniker, as you noted, Notorious RBG, a play on the late hip-hop artist and fellow Brooklynite Notorious B.I.G. And she is somewhere near canonization around these parts for us. Absolutely. I, Jamie, I didn't know. Um, I, I am in no way, shape, or form a scholar about her life. Um and there are more qualified people to talk about that. But I was reading back through some articles on her life. And um, I've noticed, as as many people probably have and may already know, uh, that the phrase, I dissent, is often you know associated with her own memes or, or, or things like that that get shared around on social media. Um, I was but a, a, a wee babe during the, um, not that young, I was 16 during the 2000 presidential election between Bush and Gore. And I did not realize that the I dissent phrase was attached to the Supreme Court's having to weigh in on that election or choosing to weigh in on that election, um, in which Ginsburg um, objected to the majority decision, which effectively handed the nomination or the the, uh, presidency to George W. And she uh, concluded her decision uh, as she was writing about that with with the phrase I dissent which I'm just learning uh, was a significant departure from the tradition of usually including the adverb respectfully. I respectfully dissent. And so Ginsburg was not to be trifled with here and had major reservations about what had happened and just very forcefully said, I dissent instead of I respectful dissent. So that was a new thing to learn. And I'm glad I learned it. And just one more um, jewel in her crown, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Jamie, let's talk a bit about the fact, as we've alluded to, um, that Ginsburg has become something of a a pop culture celebrity um, in a way that many Supreme Court justices have not. And in doing so, I think what we we see there is that she has um, symbolized something very powerful for her life to take up. Um, you could buy bobbleheads of RBG, memes galore, photo. I mean, like just it, there is a whole thing around her, and rightfully so, in my opinion. But behind that is this layer of symbolism and what she represents uh, uh, to liberals and progressives and women and groups such as that. Uh, so could you reflect for a moment on uh, on some of the symbolism and what you've seen and what the world might look like or will look like without her presence in it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that when, when we found out at the house on Friday night about her passing, I mean, we we both sort of unashamedly started crying, not just because of the passing of such a, a great American and a great human being who more often than not uh, stood in the breach between sort of uh, 
progressivism and those who would uh, tear it down. So it was, uh, but more than that, you know, in the in the days that have passed since then, what I have seen is um, just women in my life in general who have spoken of the spoken of the 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 power that that RBG represented for them, the 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 force for good and the the guard of of rights and 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 absent her on the court, and we can sort of go into this a little bit, but absent her on the court, it's very, very difficult to see how those rights are not uh, going to be fairly quickly infringed upon in any number of ways. Uh, and I think that that is very, very troubling. Yeah, she did have uh, a symbolic power to her, and I would go as far as to say that no other Supreme Court justice that I can think of was the pop phenomenon that that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. Uh, like I said, she she was played magnificently by Kate McKinnon on uh, Saturday Night Live, and those uh, those sets were always very very funny, and she did a very good job with it. To be tied to to a rapping Brooklynite uh, is also both quite humorous, but also speaks to the power of her presence in the world and the the degree to which she was willing to stand up against what has been historically a primarily male-driven field, and and yet still stand she did. Uh, so I am. I am moved by her her strength of character and her ability to withstand barbs from primarily the right, but from all sides from time to time, and and interpret the law as she saw fit. Uh, I think that that is going to be lost moving forward. I don't think that in today's climate, uh, an RBG could possibly get through a Senate hearing. And, and so I'm just left to to just sort of mourn that, that, that we are passing from a different time period to a new time period in which, uh, in which those who hold sort of um, strong progressive leanings and progressive interpretations of the Constitution are largely falling away and what's being replaced and, and, and being replaced by uh, either conservatism, a hard right conservatism, or sort of a, a moderate um, moderate centrist kind of position. And I think we're worse off because of that. Yeah, I would tend to agree for sure. Um, I, I read earlier today that she, had, she got through her Senate confirmation hearing with a vote of 96 to 3. Uh, so presumably some one person abstained. Um, but that's that's significant, uh, and particularly given, like you said, like it was no, um, it, it wasn't a secret that she had an, a, an activist um, orientation, you know, prior to this appointment, um, and that's so we we lift that up. Also, um, her her name is uh, is uh, attached to um, some major landmark decisions over the last ten years, not just two, but two that I'll lift up here. Um, one uh, was one of the decisions that really upheld, it was King v. Burwell that upheld major parts of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. 
Um, and so that uh, was a significant role that she played there. And then also with, um, I'll not get this name, I will not pronounce the name correctly, but it's uh, Oberfell v. Hodges, uh, which legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Um, and people have written about the importance of Ginsburg's uh, role in that in the sense that she had publicly shown support for same-sex marriage prior to the case ever being taken up. And that apparently she had also officiated same-sex marriages. And in that sense, again, there's just uh, there's so much to her. I, I, I think part of what we're thinking about here is the fact that Supreme Court justices are not typically, it's just not the tradition for them to be very uh, vocal publicly about their stances on things for reasons that are respectable. Um, and I, I don't think that Ginsburg transgressed that norm more than anyone else. Um, but there is, uh, I, I, that just goes, you know, presidents are always very public facing, you know, figurehead type of, uh, of leaders. The Supreme Court justices are expected and, and usually play the role of being more quiet and in the background to the point where, you know, like at the State of the Union, um, usually the, the justices are almost always, the justices do not stand up or applaud any particular aspect of a president's speech uh, in a way similar to um, military generals, et cetera. So it is, it just lends itself all the more to the fact that um, she became such a bright star on our uh, sort of popular cultural uh, uh, this, uh, Jamie, do you want to offer us a final word uh, for, before we close out this segment? I do. You know, we uh, we talked about her impact, sort of in the larger sense, but I think it's important to to recognize the degree to which she really was the firewall against a lot of rights that we honestly now take for granted. She was the firewall against those going away. Uh, you know, we can talk about sort of the maintaining of Roe v. Wade, and I think that's important to to recognize. But I also think there's a better than average chance that, uh, that, that some state is going to take a run at doing away with same-sex marriage. And, and I think that that knowing that, I think it's going to be a much uh, I think that the same-sex marriage is likely to be challenged uh, by by some state, more than likely from the South, uh, but also sort of the Voting Rights Act and, like you said, Obamacare. And so she just she really represented a, a firewall against against those who would do away with those things, and and I think that 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 is now going to be missing, and we should uh, we should stop and recognize that and and try to try to stick a pin in those things and just keep an eye on the courts moving forward jamie we're uh, moving along now to our bless their hearts portion of the show in which we muster all of our southern passive aggressiveness and bless the heart of somebody who has uh, goofed or gotten us tickled or has left an unflattering impression of themselves on the world Jamie, whose heart are you blessing today and why? Well, Mark, I am reaching back to my Southern pastorness, and I am blessing the heart of one President Donald J. Trump, uh, who in <laughs> who in Fayetteville, North Carolina, earlier this week, my beloved 
former hometown of Fayetteville, North Carolina, told the crowd that was gathered there, the sleepy campaign, by which means the Biden campaign, of course, has joined forces with those trying to tear down America in our way of life. He comes out with a platform. There will be no oil. There will be no God. There will be no guns. Now, syntax issues notwithstanding, I, I am troubled as a pastor by someone who would say that another human being can do away with God. And again, my friends in the evangelical community really ought to take this up as well, though there seems little chance that they will. And I'm going to keep beating this drum about the commodification of God language and religion until somebody hears me. And so I'm lifting this up, this thing that he said that he will continue to say, no doubt, in campaigns. Uh, and I'm lifting this up and I'm saying, bless your heart, Donald Trump. Please leave God out of your mouth. <laughs> uh, well, on the same note of uh, commodifying God and religion, I can turn uh, in, in my portion of this to Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, who I believe you have blessed his heart recently. I'm going to bless it again. He gets a double portion. Um, it recently has come out that his wife um, had called 911 because it seems as though he had drunkenly stumbled down a flight of stairs on a Sunday morning or at some point at which she was at church um, and he was not. And uh, the, the details are sketchy because she, on record, she says that she does not want to say very much to the 911 operator about what it was that had happened because of who her husband was. But reports um, have, have, have emerged afterwards saying that, you know, blood alcohol levels, et cetera, you know, seem to have been a bit of a, a bit of a mess here. Uh, we get somebody who ran a university for years and his father before him who, you know, a lot, not allowed drinking on campus and stigmatized these things and called it a sin, et cetera. Um, that doesn't surprise me so much, you know, my cynicism being what it is. Uh, but it did make me want to make one other quick comparison before we jump back into our, our, our next segment. Um, somebody once challenged me, uh, rightfully so, um, back around the time that Rush Limbaugh received his cancer diagnosis. And they challenged me on something I'd said related to that. And, and, and very much the same could be done here. Like, I don't want to make fun of Jerry Falwell Jr. If he has a drinking issue um, and the way that that impacts his family, I, I don't. I don't take that lightly, and I do not. Want, I don't I wish. I don't wish to poke fun at it in a, in a certain way. Um, in another way, we can as a public figure. It's something to 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 note the hypocrisies and the, all of the ways that uh, Falwell has, has weaponized morality, conservative Christian values, etc. And then to see how all of this has played out for him, bless his heart. But what I would say, what I did say back to the gentleman who, who pushed me on some some snark that I threw about Rush Limbaugh, not at all celebrating his cancer or anything like that, nothing on the dehumanizing side. But what I did say back was, you know, there is there is a part, we learned this from our esteemed uh, PhD advisor and mentor, Dr. Stephen Ray, that uh, repentance is also very much a strong part of the Christian tradition. And there is a lot of public amends. There are many public amends that someone like a Limbaugh or a Falwell Jr. need to make, um, and that's also equally expected of them. The The person asked me, well, why don't, are you not going to pray for Rush Limbaugh? And my comment was, of course, I'll pray for him. I'll pray for that he will repent for all the damage that he's done. 
in our society. And in the same way, I do not wish to poke fun at Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, but some, you know, some acknowledgement of all of the harm that he has sought to to do uh, to the Christian world and to our society and all that he has stood for that is uh, just not so great. Uh, it, would, it would be nice to get, uh, you know, I don't expect it, but it would be nice to get some of that. So Christian grace is not just this, you know, blanket thing that um, can just be tossed about willy-nilly. That's what I learned from Dr. Ray, at least. Um, it's there. But uh, there is some responsibility that, uh, that others need to take. And I'll get off my soapbox now because this is supposed to be a light and, um, and fun segment. So on that note, Jamie, um, we'll wrap up our segment. But listeners, please remember that if you ever have suggestions for whose hearts we should bless, feel free to let us know on Facebook or Twitter at DS Theologians. We look forward to hearing from you. Jamie, in our second segment today, I wanted to zoom out to the national political stage and talk about both the fallout uh, and the possibilities that are present at this critical time in the wake of RBG's death. Could you start us off by walking us through the responses by the current occupant of the White House and his chief de mentor, uh, the head of the Senate majority, Mitch McConnell? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, within, I think it was an hour uh, of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, Leader McConnell had released a statement saying that they were going to be full full steam ahead, pressing to uh, replace Justice Ginsburg on the courts uh, before the election. Now, I can, of course, remember back in 2016 where, uh, where one President Barack Obama, in his last year of office, uh, nominated Merrick Garland to the bench, uh, Merrick Garland being a moderate's moderate, and I think Obama trying to uh, both nominate another justice, but also throw a bone to the Republicans who controlled the Senate at that point. Mitch McConnell, in all his Mitch McConnellness, quickly declared that he was not going to offer an up or down vote. He was not going to meet with Judge Garland. He was not going to honor this nomination in any way, shape, or fashion largely because this was an election year and it was his belief that in election years, nominations ought not to be uh, respected. Uh, Now, (laughs) it will shock you, of course, to learn that once it was time for Donald Trump to perhaps put a third uh, justice on the court, that Mitch McConnell had had found a new, uh, new way of seeing things. And he is, of course, moving full steam ahead with his co-pilot, Lindsey Graham, and much of the Republican Party pushing him forward. And so it's, yeah, it's uh, the, both the current occupant of the White House who has said that he is going to be nominating a woman as, uh, as early as Friday or Saturday and thinks that, uh, that this should get done in no time, uh, that it's plenty of time to, to get from nomination to confirmation before the election. Uh, also, our, our good friend Rush Limbaugh actually encouraged Senate Republicans to skip through the confirmation hearing process so that, for instance, vice presidential nominee and candidate Kamala Harris did not have a chance to tear into whomever is the lucky person to garner the president's nomination, and they should just move straight from nomination to voting. Uh, so, so that happened today as well. There are like I said, there are any number of directions that we can take this in. We can talk about sort of the hypocrisy of it all, and, and that's that's certainly fertile ground. Uh, 
but there's also, I think, the larger political question that we can delve into. Like, what's this going to look like moving forward? What's this going to do for the election? You know, who's going to benefit from this this passing? I think is I think all those are very, very, like I said, fruitful and fertile ground to uh, to plow. If you know your choice, Mark, where you want to go with it? Well, I would choose both. We've got lots of time. Um, Let's start with the idea, though, that this constitutes some type of hypocrisy on the part of Mitch McConnell, which, you know, on its face, it certainly does. It's obvious. I think a historical point to note out was that Obama's uh, nomination of, of Judge Merrick Garland, this was all happening uh, around January or so of the election year. So we're talking about the difference of roughly 11 months between nomination and the general election compared to what's now less than two months, about really six, seven weeks away. Um, so it is, it's not apples to oranges. Um, I think most people with that historical memory you know, would be quick to say and would know that. There is a larger question, though, and I've seen it floating around Facebook some, uh, amongst ourselves uh, and some things that you've been pondering, Jamie, and also... Um, just with uh, with folks, you know, who who political junkies and, and and fellow progressive theologians such as ourselves, who want to like kick the tires on this idea of hypocrisy with this conservative world. Do, what what are your thoughts on that? There's more than I want to say, but I'm waiting to hear your thoughts on um, on what you're thinking about that. Oh no, absolutely. <laughs> it it is not difficult to locate the hypocrisy in, in this, and but honestly. Like this is one of the things that, that drives me a little batty about the Democratic Party. Like if you really believed that the Mitch McConnell in 2016 who said that he would not begin to honor the the nomination of Merrick Garland wasn't also going to do whatever he needed to to put in a new Supreme Court justice in 2020, I have some oceanfront property in Arizona I would love to sell you. Because this is this is a guy who is more politically manipulative than any politician I have ever seen in my life. And he, he's 12 steps ahead of everything. Like he has a plan for everything. And so the idea that he would not take this opportunity to shift the court even further to the right, I think is, is foolhardy. And so there is, of course, there's hypocrisy there. But at the end of the day, Republicans are always able to sort of outmaneuver and outflank Democrats on political issues like this. And this time will be, I'm convinced, no different. So I don't really know sort of what to do with Democrats who are all flustered by this and all up in arms about it and talking about everything from sort of Robert's rules and parliamentary procedure to stopping it to impeaching the president again, in order to sort of tie up the Senate. The belief that any of that is going to make a difference is both adorable and troubling. And I think that this is this is one of the chief issues that the Democratic Party is going to have to wrestle with in the coming days, weeks, and months, is that either you can be good and honorable or you can get things done. And those two things seem to be mutually exclusive right now. And so I am I am left to sort of watch the hemming and hauling that has come both out of the, the the legislative body, but also just sort of progressives and Democrats, my friends in general, there really is sort of this push to you know, claim the higher ground, both because it was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but also just because of the, 
the world that Republicans set up in 2016 with Merrick Garland. And yet at the end of the day, they don't care. They're going to get this through. If they if that's what they decide they want to do, they're going to get this through. And there's no amount of hemming and hauling or sort of appealing to better angels or parliamentary procedures or anything that's going to stop that. And that's a, I think that's something that the Democratic Party sort of writ large is going to need to sit with for a while. Yeah. And if we didn't learn that in 2016, uh, I mean, I don't know at what point we, we do learn that lesson. That's my pessimism on that front. Um, it is, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly hypocritical, um, and yet it's like you said, it's textbook Mitch McConnell. Um, there, he has given us absolutely zero reasons on why we should trust that at the end of the day he has some basic respect for decorum or norms or things like that. Unless they, the only respect he has for them are ways that he can manipulate them in such a way as to get the legislative and now judicial outcomes that he you know finds valuable and wants to see uh shape the the future of the united states um it you know i there's a difference between being frustrated at what mcconnell's doing and the hypocrisy behind it and being surprised or being caught flat-footed by it as well and so i think that's what i'm hearing from you some of the some of the discouragement that I feel, I'll speak for myself, when I see some people who, who seem to be surprised by this or morally outraged, again, you can be outraged, but don't be surprised, right? And in saying that, we'll, we'll harken back to uh, Jesus of Nazareth, even of being uh, wise as serpents and yet being like doves as well. Like you, we, we need to be both um, so we can, we can appeal to moral high ground for sure. Um, but also be wise as serpents when it comes to successfully navigating the political terrain and the ball game as it is played by conservatives in this respect. Like it is something to say, like you said earlier, you said we can, you can take the moral high ground or you can play the, the hand that you've been dealt or the political situation as it actually operates and I think some people confuse, you know, out of some desire for, I don't know, to be morally pure or morally righteous or even morally superior, um, that to make a compromise or to uh, to somehow, you know, to, to, to get that lesson of the necessity of having to play political hardball. That's not compromising our, our morals or our better angels or those types of things. Uh, for me, and maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a cynic or a, or a pragmatist or both. It's, uh, it is assessing, it's assessing the, uh, I don't want to use the word enemy because it sounds too strong, but maybe in this case it's warranted. Um, it's assessing your enemy adequately. You know, and then learning how to move forward when they hold the power that they hold, as McConnell holds it as Senate Majority Leader, is assessing that power correctly, and then, you know, choosing a path forward that can hopefully adequately respond or contend with the power dynamics and the hypocrisy in this instance um, that he would take in such in such a way. What's also interesting, Jamie, let's let's turn around to this side of it. Um, as Democrats determine their responses to the machinations of McConnell here, who just, God knows, yeah, it frustrates me every time. I mean, whenever I see his face, I get frustrated, but especially now that it took less than an hour. I get the frustration. Um, but what, what are your thoughts about some of the bigger picture issues here on how, how Democrats respond 
to what does seem to be a tragedy and an injustice in terms of the way McConnell handled it in 16 and the way he handles it now. Given all that, what's at stake in the way Democrats respond, given that we are six or seven weeks away? I want to go in two directions here, I think. Right. So one of the one of the memes that I've seen moving about moving about social media the last day or so has uh, has an image of the the RBG you know lace sort of collar thing that she wore in court uh, with uh, with a message that said something like "Go vote and tell them that Ruth sent you," and and I'm all for that. Like I think I, I think that the Democrats' chief issue is of course voting turnout and and getting their folks to the polls, and I, I think that it's worth wanting to maintain and celebrate her legacy through the patriotic act of voting, right? And I think that's great. And I think that I'm hoping that the results that one gets from that are going to be good for the future of the nation. That being said, the desire by the party to, again, sort of cry foul and to to sort of uh, almost just throw a fit on the floor of Congress it's the worst possible look that they can have right now. Everybody in the country is well aware of the hypocrisy of, of this move. Now move on, right? It's fine uh, if you're Cory Booker to get up on Friday night and say, oh, this is such a hypocritical move that they're doing. And that's fine. But that can't be where you land, right? That's a good first step. But ultimately, you've got to be able to lay out a plan that makes an argument before the nation as to why Democrats should be entrusted with this sacred duty moving forward and not Republican. And, and absent that, you just look like the guy, the coach who spends the, the post-game interview complaining about the refs, right? And you, and you don't want to be that guy. Like, nobody likes that guy. And at times, the Democratic Party often feels like that to me. It feels like the guy who's complaining about the holding call or the pass interference in the back of the end zone or, or or some degree of referee malfeasance that cost his team the game. Go out and play better next time. And that's what I just, I, I can't get over how poorly it feels like Democrats have played this hand. And it's really, you know, it's two or three days old at this point. So it's not, the game is certainly not over. But at the moment, what I hear is um, it's sort of tut tut tutting. On, on Mitch McConnell and the president and talking about sort of the sacred duty of all this. And I, you know, I think that's great. And I think you should lift that up. And I think it's important to mark that. But what's the next step after that? And that's the piece that I need the Democrats to sort of think through at this point. Like, what what are we going to, what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen the next time? And so that's, that's where I am today. You know, I, I I've got a piece that's going to be up, I assume, sometime in the next day or so on on PST that essentially says that all that we're going through right now was completely both predictable and preventable, right? It says something to me profound that as great as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was and as, as good a job as she did of holding that line, it says something incredibly sad about the state of democratic politics and progressivism in general, that we were depending on a four-time cancer-surviving octogenarian to do that work for us, rather than being about that work for ourselves and making that argument for ourselves, rather than allowing her to 
to to write scathing dissents on Robert's decisions that are actually going to be law and are actually going to interpret law. I'm frustrated that we as as progressives felt like it was a good idea to put all the onus of of holding that line on her. The the other piece to that is that I, I hear all these Democrats coming on television and talking about how well this is what this is what's going to be determining the future and this is the this is what this election is going to be about now and I just want to say no it's it's really not this is what 2016 was about and more often than not Democrats across the country especially in Pennsylvania Wisconsin and Michigan all largely sat at home rather than going and voting and set this up uh, and so this was entirely predictable. This woman, especially when she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, knew that she had a limited amount of time left. And if Democrats and progressives were not preparing for that eventuality, then shame on us, because it really was and it is on us to be the next generation and not depend on two generations ago now to do that heavy lifting, because it's just too much to ask for one person to to stand there and hold the door shut to you know to give you a game of thrones references you brought game of thrones in last week i am frustrated that that the way this is being set up by by the democrats again is that this is what the next election is going to be about when it's not if mitch mcconnell wants to call a vote tomorrow on whomever to be the next supreme court justice he can and that's done right so there is no sort of uh response or reprisal that can come from Democrats, at least during this term. And so in a lot of ways, it's, in in fact, in every way, it's not about the future election. It's about the 2016 election in which more often than not, Democrats decided to stay at home rather than going and voting for the candidate that best represented their values. And so on one level, it feels like we deserve whatever we get from this point forward. Yeah, I certainly understand what you mean there. I want to go back to for a moment and say, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, people across the country are aware, uh, you know, fully aware of the hypocrisy of of Mitch McConnell. And with that, I 100 percent agree. Um, And at the same time, I want to take a step back further and say that something that progressive Democrats would do well to keep in mind here is the assumption, first of all, that a vacancy on the Supreme Court is something that all Democrats and just all and swing voters, people in the middle, and even a good chunk of Republicans, that this is just something that's automatically going to register on our radars, and, and that it has the political import that it certainly does have. It is there is a lot of political import here, and there are a lot of things at stake. Um, the question that I'm, I'm bringing up, though, is does whatever average means, and I know there's a lot of ways to discuss that. But does the average voter who's not listening to political podcasts every day or not reading the news every day or maybe more than once a week, are they aware? Are they aware that it happened? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Are there people driving down the interstate right now or highways and are are asking their beloveds why are the flags blown at half mast, you know, or who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is? Like, yeah, I bet there are a good number of American citizens who – she might be floating somewhere in their orbit, but they don't know a whole lot about it. Um, are we assuming a lot of like civic education here about the again the importance of the role of the Supreme Court and what so what what this means? Um, I think that we can put um, too great of expectations 
there sometime. And that's not a slam on anybody. It's just a, it's, again, it's just a, a, a sense of trying to be politically honest and, and having a good sense of the levels of civic involvement that um, all Americans have or don't have. And those of us who are hyper invested in this stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm in that party, uh, it, is, it is easy, and I've been beating this drum for a while, it is easy to sometimes not appreciate or underappreciate the levels at which other citizens keep track of these things and are motivated by them. And I think it's not, um, I think Democrats are, 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 we're in a, our, our democracy is worse off, but we're in a slightly better position because we've seen four years of a Trump leadership, of Trump's leadership or lack thereof. Um, but I, I do think it's always dangerous for Democrats, especially to just assume that this is going to be a, a motivating force to get more people to go out to the polls and to vote. And I do not think we can rest on that at all. Um, again, we never thought we'd live in a world in which a celebrity TV host uh, could become president. And yet, as you pointed out, because of low voter turnouts in certain swing states, that's what we have. Um, there's a, a related article to this um, in the New York Times that uh, it came out recently within the last few weeks, uh, last couple of days, actually. It's called The New Politics of Race by David Leonhardt. And he quite simply makes a similar argument around matters of, of racial issues. And he says, and I'll quote him here, it's a reminder that well-educated progressive activists and writers of all races are well to the left of most Black, Hispanic, and Asian voters on major issues, in a quote. Um, and the article is talking a lot about how there's a growing number of Hispanic voters, particularly male Hispanic voters, who are starting to show uh, more interest in the Trump candidates or the Trump, um, the Trump, uh, yeah, run for or for re-election, and that when polled, people in the black community, Hispanic community, and white community, uh, the numbers don't skew the way progressive activists like to think that they do, um, in terms of you know sensibilities around defunding the police, matters related to ICE, immigration customs, etc that uh, minority communities, so-called minority communities, that their political voting does not neatly break down, that it doesn't automatically put them in the camp of the Democrats the way that some progressive activists, and according to the numbers in this poll, again, he's, the author makes the claim that this is usually an assumption held by activists and progressives of all races, assume that just by default, people of color are going to wake up uh, in six or seven weeks and just go to the polls and automatically vote for the Democratic candidate. Um, as we saw in 2016, the bigger concern is whether people show up and vote at all. Um, and I, again, I just, uh, what's the, I, I guess Democrats should continue to practice the, just simply getting our heads out of the sand and assuming because that a lot of the more politically inclined folk who pay very much attention to this, that that's just, that that is, that that is what other people think about. And I went on this long tirade, I suppose, because of the original question in terms of what Democrats do between now and November 4th, 5th, 6th, whenever election day is, it will matter and it will matter to swing voters and it will matter to people who are on the cusp or actual moderates or people who just don't spend a lot of time thinking about politics who go to the polls and are making decisions in real time it does matter. I don't know to what extent, uh, but the fights that we choose to fight or the hills that we choose to die on in relation to this or other things uh, does have something to say. 
that that I think we should be considerate of. There was a poll that came out a few years back where more Americans could name all the family members of the Simpsons than could name a single Supreme Court justice. When, when you said, when, when you talked about uh, the guy rolling down the highway and asking who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, I thought about that, right? You and I eat, sleep, and breathe this, and that's fine. I, I you know, we are both sort of junkies in that way, but most people aren't. Indeed, most people, until a few years ago, really could go months, years, without really knowing what the president did or said about any given topic, right? Now, my only caveat to that is that in the age of Trump, I don't know how you can avoid it, right? It is so, it, it's it's like the mm-hmm. air you breathe at some point that that so must this current occupant of the White House control not just sort of the 24-hour news cycle, but just what folks are talking about on the street corner that I don't think, it's not like before to me. At least I don't think it is. It's not It's not that you can be sort of unengaged as to what's going on just because it's so in your face all the time that it's impossible to avoid. And I think the numbers also bear that out. I think that statistically, the number of movable voters at this point in the election is minuscule. And you really are talking about just a handful in each state. And it's because while you can go years during, say, a Clinton presidency or a Bush presidency and not really form a hard and fast opinion on on the, the both the job performance and the sort of personal nature of of those presidents, you can't do that with Donald Trump. Like he doesn't allow that. Right. He he. He takes positions and says things that you're either 100% for or you're 100% against. And I don't know how you avoid sort of hitting those dichotomies and landing on one side or the other. I don't know how you can be uh, sort of uh, apathetic about what the president says or does on any given day. I just don't, that's not how his formula works. And so I'm, my sincere hope is that that for this election and maybe even moving forward, folks will be more um, tuned in to the machinations of, of politics, if only because it has such a profound impact on the world in which they live, right? Coronavirus has shown us that, right? The, the efforts by the administration to do away with the ACA and thus folks with pre-existing conditions losing their health care in the middle of a national and a global pandemic, right? These things have real and lasting effects on people. You staying at home for a month when all this was going on in the middle of, you know, March into April, like that, that had a profound impact, not just on your life, but on your neighbor's life and your neighbor's neighbor's life. And and so there is something that is real and tangible and, and authentic about how this affects each person's life right now. And I just don't know how you can avoid being aware of that at this point in the history of our country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly a game that Trump plays. Um, I, the other piece of that on the other side of it is social media, right? Like there was a time, um, we're not uh, we're not so young that we can't remember a time before 2007, 8, 9, 10 or so, where there was not a laptop in front of us every day or a computer or a phone, a smartphone and a social media app to which uh, I at least am hopelessly addicted. 
<laughs> and, uh, and therefore we're seeing this stuff all the time. We're sharing it. We're talking about it. It's constantly in our face. We're looking at pictures of people's puppies. And then we're also seeing memes about RBG, Trump, et cetera, et cetera. So it is just a constant. It's not just a news cycle. It's not just a 24 hour news cycle on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. It is on, you know, into our very social media feeds. And that certainly does, to your point, um, increase the likelihood that folks are, um, even if they don't consider themselves to be very political, they are at least seeing things, whether they want to or not, you know, to the degree that they stay friends with these people or connected with them via social media. Um, it reminds me of a student of mine from the Delta who uh, he knew Mike Bloomberg. This was back during the Democratic uh, nomination or, you know, for, uh, for a candidate for during the primary season. And uh, he knew Mike Bloomberg. Uh, I think that was the only Democratic candidate. He was a young man. He was the only candidate that he knew, but he knew him only because of uh, Bloomberg's ad blitz and that this kid liked to watch a lot of YouTube. And uh, and he would see his ads all the time on YouTube. So he knew his name. Like that's, you know, that's, that, that is the world that we live in. Um, I also wanted to go back and make a clarifying point about the article in the New York Times for about more, you know, far to far to the left activist friends out there. The the columnist is very he's very careful not to say that there's anything wrong with that activism. Like he doesn't there's nothing wrong with an activism or occupying that place on the left and fighting for the things that they fight for. Um, and I, I I'm in and out of that world for sure. Uh, and understand the sense of urgency and the prophetic voice that 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 type of um, position. Uh, in our country takes, and, I, and I'm, I'm often very much appreciative of the work that people do in that regard. Um, the point he's making is just trying to bring up the more sober reality of that the, the worldview, the values, the politics, the methods that people use who are on the farther ends of the spectrum, just to have some self-awareness that that does not always translate into the more moderate wings uh, for us, the Democratic Party, and here again, he's bringing up even the racial breakdowns of uh, key issues that we think or assume we know about people of color that that would get them out of bed into the polls, um, or that they would just naturally uh, gravitate to certain planks that are in our platform when that's not always the case. The party is bigger and more diverse than what um, anybody at any one point on the spectrum may, may tend to think, and it's good to be aware of that. Jamie, it's now time for our front porch musings or a time when we share something that has touched our hearts or that we have found interesting that may not be national headline news, which we've been doing a lot of today. So, Jamie, imagine that McConnell has listened to reason and agreed to postpone any vote on a Supreme Court justice nominee, and you are feeling relieved and you're back at home and you're on your porch and you're musing about the world. What are you musing about today? Mark, I want to take a minute to... Uh to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is food, especially Southern food. As you know, and some of our listeners might know, I've been a vegetarian for ooh, 16, 17 years. Uh, and I have toyed off and on with being a vegan during that time. And yet it is very, 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 very difficult to, <laughs> to, to find Southern food that is largely vegetarian and certainly never vegan. <laughs> so I, you know, during this pandemic that we have been in the midst of, I have done a lot of cooking at home, uh, more so than I have done in the past. Uh, and 
and have found a cookbook that has given me those Southern tastes that I like without any sort of uh, animal products. It's a, by a guy named Timothy Packron, who is a chef in Mississippi, and it's called Mississippi Vegan, and it is fabulous. He's got a website and a cookbook, both of which produce wonderful food and beautiful images. Uh, and so if you are, like me, a huge fan of Southern food, and yet do not uh, partake in animal. Uh, I, I recommend this both cookbook and website to you. He is a great chef. His book is very entertaining. His pictures are gorgeous. His food's great. So Mississippi Vegan, Timothy Packman, check it out. Awesome. Jamie, I'm going to shout out very quickly The Root, which is a restaurant, small restaurant in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they do a lot of Southern dishes. And many of them are vegan, if not vegetarian. Um, uh, or the other way around, but they do have a lot of vegan options and they have, uh, they do a surprisingly good job. So I'm glad there's a cookbook out there. I want to shout them out too, because it's, um, they have very, like a very hipster following in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. They do great food. Um, so it's just encouraging to hear you share that there are options out there like that uh, to get your good Southern food fix and also to do it minus the animal, as you said. I want to share just a moment about uh, a new album that has come out in the last week or two, and it is by Marilyn Manson. Uh, for me, as a young adult, um, I was in my teens when Manson was at his height of popularity. Um, everyone in my fundamentalist Christian world was very convinced that Manson was a Satanist and uh, a prototype, if not the actual Antichrist. <laughs> so, uh, Let's just—it should just be said that I didn't listen to a lot of Marilyn Manson's music during that time of my life, um, and still to this day, I, I, I do not consider myself a devoted follower, even though I've you know opened up a bit more to the world. Um, but I, I have found myself going back to engage some of his music off and on over the years, just to kind of get a glimpse of what I missed out on. And this this gentleman who was very very demonized by by the far by by a Christian conservative Christian circles, and so. Uh, he got he has a new album out. I started listening through it, and uh, and also came to find out that uh, one uh, Shooter Jennings uh, collaborated and helped produce this album. Uh, Shooter Jennings, of course, uh, for those who are fans of country music, is the son of Waylon Jennings, um, and you can hear uh, some of Shooter's influence at various points in this album. Um, Manson, of course, is. Uh, I mean, 20, 25 years past uh, when he was sort of at his height or a good 20 years or so. Uh, I find it enjoyable. Again, there, there's very personal reasons why I, I like kind of recovering that dimension of, a, of, a, of, a, of an artist that I didn't feel licensed to listen to uh, for moral and theological reasons. But now it's been fun to go back and to hear this and to hear that there's a connection to the singer, songwriter and producer Shinder Jennings, uh, which is just sort of a beautiful wedding in my mind of, of you know, rebel country music and with Waylon and then this album by uh, Manson, who certainly is no stranger to controversy uh, as well. So that's been interesting. If you think you're anywhere near liking the genre that Manson puts out, uh, I don't think you'll find this to be an offensive album, not just morally, but just in terms of music. It's uh, it's pretty decent and uh, recommended today. All right, good people. That's going to wrap us up. Uh, thank you for your time, Jamie. Mark, it's been a pleasure. All right. And if you're listening along, thank you for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking if you should so choose. 
Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and that does include a piece by Jamie, which he referenced today, which should be coming out shortly. Friends, y'all take care. Jamie, you take care, and we'll be back with you next week.